last few years, the conversation around history has evolved, mutated, ruptured, and everything in between. One of the core driving principles of this shift has been a return to questioning according to whom, who's writing and in turn controlling our history. To answer this question, a group of students created a podcast that we absolutely adore called Untextbooked. In each episode, a young producer talks to a scholar about a topic they're curious about. And when we say young, we mean it. Students making history. We know that you, our audience, care deeply about at least two things, continuing to learn and challenge yourself and celebrating others' learning, especially young folks. This podcast is perfect for you, and today we're bringing an episode directly to your ears through the Getting Smart podcast feed. Get ready for a ride on the power of perspective. The Untextbook podcast is back with new episodes every Thursday. Follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Untextbooked. The U.S. system of reservations, it was copied by Israel, how they would treat the Palestinians, and the apartheid regime in South Africa. In each of those cases, they took the U.S. plan, literally. Hitler also used the American model. So in some ways, you can learn more from those copying where they reveal it, whereas U.S. historians hide this and they give excuses for it and they don't call it what it is, genocide. You're listening to Untextbook. This is the podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Gavin Scott. And you're listening to Untextbooked. Did you know that there are more than 500 federally recognized indigenous nations in the United States today? Wow, that's a lot of people. Yeah, nearly 3 million people to be exact. That's 3 million stories that have largely been omitted from American history. I love learning about history in school. But the stories my family would tell me about my ancestors and Cheyenne Arapaho peoples didn't line up with what I was learning. That was one of the first times I realized the impact colonialization has had on my family and my culture. This book has opened my eyes to many more. On this episode of Untextbooked, Gavin interviews acclaimed historian and activist Professor Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, author of New York Times bestseller, and Indigenous People's History of the United States. The book is the first history of the United States told from the perspective of Indigenous people, and it reveals how for centuries, Native Americans actively resisted expansion of the U.S. empire and what we've been missing without their perspective. For Gavin, looking at history through an Indigenous lens didn't just provide a different perspective on U.S. history, but rather told the full story. We'll take a closer look at the impact ignoring Native history continues to have today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz. It has truly been a phenomenal experience reading your book and taking the time to learn this history that 
I bet was not an easy undertaking. And so I just want to say thank you so much for joining me and allowing me the time to speak with you. Well, thank you, Gavin. I'm so happy to be here with you. All right. It seems that the U.S., we've developed at least a basic vocabulary to discuss the atrocities of Chattel slavery or African-American enslavement. But this language, I feel, doesn't exist so much when talking about the horrors that indigenous populations have also experienced, oftentimes also under conditions of enslavement. How do we begin to discuss these horrors in tandem without shortcutting the particular experiences of either of these populations, both in history, but also in the current moment? Yeah, I think there are parallel oppressions. Both indigenous Africans and indigenous North Americans were dispossessed, but the Africans, indigenous Africans, were relocated, to put it mildly, that is, put in shackles and carried as slaves to the Western Hemisphere. And as I said, the Holy See, which was the governing body of all of Western Europe at the time, gave, you know, they owned the world, they claimed the world, and they gave all of Africa to Portugal and gave the rest of the Americas to Spain. So this is then a parallel experience. There was enslavement of Native people in both places, actually. In 1588, the Spanish outlawed native slavery, and this wasn't a good deed, unlike the Anglo settlers. They had a church-state contradiction because the state, of course, had done the colonizing of what became Latin America, but the or Mexico at the time, it was basically just Mexico and Central America at first, but they automatically just enslaved the native people makes it sound like, oh, the church was so nice, you know, they wanted the Native people not to be enslaved, but actually they wanted to convert them. They were still captive to the church, but not formally enslaved. So anyway, Spain outlawed Indian slavery and then started importing many more slaves from Africa because the church wasn't very interested in the souls of Africans. But the United States developed something that that had never been developed in any other hemisphere. And this is what is specifically oppressive for the descendants of enslaved Africans in the United States. The United States was founded as a capitalist state, and it had already developed this slave codes in the 1680s, South Carolina the Barbados settlers came up with their enslaved people, with slave patrols and a kind of militarized control. And they started writing black codes, slave codes, which created a what, what we call chattel slavery, created a absolute enslavement, dehumanization of the slave. Black codes. Those were restrictive laws specifically designed to limit African-American freedom after slavery. Black codes limited who had the right to own property or conduct business. These codes even kept African-Americans from moving freely in public spaces and could criminalize people that were out of work. It didn't mean no more compassionate. They worked people to death and so forth, beat them and all. But for African slaves in the colonies, They were not just valued for their labor, 
their bodies became commodities. And so the slave auction is what really marks the United States, that the body itself, by 1840, the African body multiplied by 200,000 enslaved Africans was worth more than all other capital resources, all the land, all the lumber, all the products that existed. Those bodies made up a greater amount of the GDP of the United States. So the body itself was a commodity. Exactly. This isn't just in the past tense. Right. Because in various venues across the country, the body is still a commodity. Episode 5, Layer This Season, speaks more to that. It was never quite bad in Latin America. It was oppressive, you know, and even deadly. And big slave owners in Brazil actually had their favorite enslaved person killed and buried under a, a pillar of the mansion when the slave owner died. So they were treated like non-humans, but they were not really commodified in that way, where there were slave codes of how they could be controlled and how they could be bought and sold. When I was doing research on this in the University of Virginia archives, a family, a Virginia family, Tidewater family called the Barclays, they had several family plantations. And going through their account books, it just gave me chills to read where they had lists of their farm animals, the cattle, the horses, the sheep. And right there, kind of in the middle, the Negroes, right there were, you know, counted as the animals, as commodities, and how many had been bought, how many had been sold. I've never found that in archives in Latin America, that kind of total commodification. So that's the specific horrific difference. That never happened to Native Americans. They were enslaved. They were sold into slavery. If they were captured captives, they call them captives. They were sold into slavery into the Caribbean. The Spanish, the entire what is now Western Honduras and Nicaragua, used to be densely populated with Nahuatl people who had migrated originally down from central Mexico, intensive farmers. I mean, really, really populated. That area today is one of the least populated. It's never regained its population because they actually deported almost all of the native people of that area to the mines of Peru. As slaves, you might say, but they weren't kind of, it wasn't their bodies. They just wanted to work them to death. So it's hard to measure different oppressions, but I think the chattel slavery in the United States is unique in the world and explains a lot about police behavior because slave patrols were created and these became the police. It's almost as if police, even when they're not white sometimes, as they more integrated in their training, the back of a black person walking or you know running when they feel they're you know being chased for no reason at all and shooting them in the back. This is you know this is because they're descended from slave patrols, so it's in the DNA of police forces in the United States. So that's you know a very different form of oppression 
than Native Americans, not worse or less. Genocide is it's hard to beat that, you know, it was basically wiping out Native people to take their land. On that note of genocide and like the amounts of efforts that Europeans or, you know, the colonizers did to, I mean, even closer to the like recent history on eliminating or trying to reduce the amount that Indian reserves have so that they can purchase that land and stuff like that. Or even with like boarding schools and how if they would send the kids to boarding schools so that if the parents were dead, then they could like seize their land and stuff like that. And so it's crazy the amount of genocide that goes on. But I feel like maybe for me, I don't know if it's like definitely, I mean, it might not be that way. But like to me, almost a form of genocide that's happening now, like even still, is like whenever we refer to Lud Quantum and referring to like, oh, who's actually indigenous or Native American or like who belongs to what tribe and stuff like that. And it's almost like used as a way of genocide by the tribes and stealing like certain percentages of Indian blood or heritage that needs to be enrolled in that tribe. And so I know you didn't really go into this into your book, but I was just wondering if maybe you had an opinion on that at all or anything. Yeah, the U.S. system of reservations, it's very much like you can get a say perspective on it because it was copied in 1948 by Israel, the founding of Israel, how they would treat the Palestinians and the apartheid regime in South Africa, which was also established in when the National Party took power in 1948. And in each of those cases, they took the U.S. plan, literally, I found in the U.N., library that they actually, South Africa, the South African apartheid government, they were discussing their taking their seat in the UN away from them because of apartheid as a form of genocide. And they were defending themselves and they actually produced a document where they had taken the plan from the United States, how the United States had settled. And they were absolutely right, you know, (laughs) but they did lose their seat. You know, the United States, oh, no, we didn't do that. But yes, you did. They copied it exactly. So if you look at this in, you know, more recent times, you get a picture of the kind of scientific, pseudoscientific, the scientific genocide that didn't really developed fully until the Holocaust. Hitler also used the American model. So we later fought a war that we also in some way engineered? I know. I was shocked as well when I found this out. I am speechless. There are three books out now on various aspects of Nazis using the American model, both the genocidal model, you know, simply destroying, but also the model of developing reserves for the concentration camps that they, and also for colonizing the East, you know, it was the U.S. West and the Nazi East, where they would clear out the Slavs and the Jews in Eastern Europe and move in German settlers. So that was in recent times, they were copying the United States. So in some ways, you can learn more from those copying where they reveal it, whereas U.S. historians hide this. 
you know, they obfuscate and they give excuses for it and they don't call it what it is, genocide. In fact, one historian of the West actually wrote a book on ethnic cleansing of Native Americans. He seemed to think that wasn't genocide, where he wrote a whole book trying to prove that it wasn't genocide. That is, it wasn't intentional. It was pretty much intentional. It was spelled out in the Northwest Ordinance, which got adopted by the U.S. Congress as a part of the Constitution. Yeah, and I would even say the doctrine of discovery, I think, is also, I mean, not explicitly a form of genocide, but they use that to justify many of their acts against Native Americans. So I, I like that, or not that I like, but <laughs> but the ties you have or that you make to like that pseudoscientific explanations, it's really intriguing to me. And whenever you were bringing up the the fact that um, historians were per se not removing those things, but like almost changing the, the way that they're spoken about, as you were writing this book and kind of maybe what I interpreted you were doing, but you can correct me, but almost like comparing the what is known as the colonialistic history, like the kind of the ones that are taught in school more widely known. And then like what your book is trying to highlight and like the topics that aren't really as well known because that they were almost like hidden or um, stuff like that. Was there a fact or like a story or something that you were like researching or writing about in your book that has kind of stuck with you and had lasting impact or just something that you've thought about quite a bit or something like that? Well, I think, yeah, you mentioned the doctrine of discovery because the United States by then, well, colonialism was Protestantism instead of Catholicism. So there had been the Reformation and everything, but the doctrine of discovery was pre every, all of Europe was Catholic and under the Holy See. And there weren't separate states. They were all regions that belonged to the Holy Roman Empire as a dictator. So the doctrine of discovery was right after Columbus returned, it was a papal bull that gave the whole Western Hemisphere to Spain. And Portugal complained, so they corrected it and said it was shared with Portugal. But nevertheless, the British, when they came, they claimed we have the doctrine of discovery too. So it went from being a Catholic papal bull, sort of supposedly a legal cover for colonialism, to really a, a non-sectarian practice that upon discovery, this is mine. Even if there are people there, I discovered it because they're not Europeans. They are not civilized people. They sort of put them in the animal reign, you know, where they could either use them for labor or kill them off like they did all the deer and the, almost every animal they made extinct. <laughs> They're only now some of them recovering from extinction, like the grizzly bear. Yeah, or even uh, the buffaloes that was in oh, the yeah. book as well. Yeah, absolutely. The 50 million buffalo. I mean, that's an incredible task. They had the army shooting them. This was illegal even then within international law. It was illegal 
to wipe out the population in order to take their land to destroy the resources of people. It was criminal and it worked in a certain way because the Lakota Cheyenne people who really had been, you know, farming people among those agrarian people of the northern Missouri, very, very rich land and waterways and all great farmers. They kept getting pushed and pushed by settlement. So they on the plains, you know, agriculture doesn't work as well unless modern destroying the land, you know, causing dust bowls and all that they turn to the buffalo as a single source of food and of resources. The, everything, the clothing they had, the blankets they had was, you know, parts of the buffalo. And then they, of course, as Native people did, they made the buffalo sacred. They didn't just slaughter them. They only took them for in the need. And then it was literally their most sacred item, you know, creature. So that that controlled the, you know, any kind of greed or anything to make it the religion. That's how Native people operated or most Indigenous people of the world, you know, before Western civilization. So then they, the slaughter of the buffalo was to take that, you know, the food away to starve them out. And it worked because... And I think you see that in U.S. wars. You know, one of the things I want to do in that book is show how wars today are, you know, really based on Indian wars. The U.S. ends up being really genocidal in their wars. It's like they can't help it. They go off the, you know, so they've created these special forces that can, they just allowed to do that now. You know, <laughs> so, and they do counterinsurgency. You know, even when it's not called for. So when they went to the Philippines after conquering North America, they did the same thing in the Philippines. This horrible counterinsurgency killed millions and millions of Filipinos. And that's just the method. And I think that in the U.S. psyche, I think no one has even gotten near gauging what kind of horror is inherited generation to generation from that. It's almost like the only way to expel it is to make a war, another genocidal war, whether in Vietnam or then, you know, in Central America and then in the Arab world. And leaving Afghanistan, immediately they didn't miss a beat until they really egged on a war that they could participate in without soldiers because people get upset when their kids are dying and Ukraine and, and Russia. And I do think the U.S. really set that up and they're the big donors, you know, I mean, they, they're participating in another way. So it's, you know, it's this history isn't the past, you know, it really lives with us. And that's what I really wanted to get over in the book, you know, is to people to understand unless they bring this up to knowledge and look at it, they won't be able to make change in the present. And our movements, yeah, I've been involved in movements for change since I was a 60s person, you know, and against the war in Vietnam, civil rights, the Black Panthers, supporting the Black Panthers, the American Indian movement. And 
this is, I think we didn't ourselves know enough in the 60s, understand this enough. And I feel like I was very fortunate because I got involved in the American, I got really recruited to be an expert witness for the American Indian movement and some trials after Wounded Knee. I hated U.S. history. It just seemed like it's all lies and I didn't want to go to trouble to disproving them. They were just boring. And I learned from Native people. I That's how I learned U.S. history. And so that's why I think only Native people, I mean, even people without an eighth grade education, they can tell you stories that reveal U.S. history. And I think descendants of enslaved Africans can do that too about slavery. You can become then a very patriotic person like W.B. Du Bois or like, you know, a lot of Black leaders, more patriotic than anyone, you know, because you're now a part of it. And that's why people avoid knowing about Native Americans, because it just blows the whole thing, you know, the whole story of America is wiped out. But if we don't bring that up, we're just going to keep repeating, trying to hide it by reenacting it and ultimately destroying the world. You know, it's really a, a dilemma. It's almost an existential necessity that people come, the United States come to terms with that history. And Native people are so few because they were so decimated. The descendants, they're among the best scholars. I mean, they only started, you know, really being able to get higher education in the 1960s and, you know, with demonstrations and everything. And now there's a really several generations of scholars and, you know, they're just blossoming. But if every single Native American became a scholar and teaching in a university, it still wouldn't be enough people to really spread that information. And that means it has to be embraced and understood. And I think it, you know, I, the Indigenous people's history had it's gone through so many printings. It's being used in New Mexico, Central New Mexico Education Department, bought 20,000 copies for their teachers to, you know, teach a whole program around the book, 20,000 teachers in one school district. It's amazing to me. And when I talked with them, they, of course, you know, there, there, a lot of them are Hispano or, or indigenous teachers, so they have a better knowledge of it. And even the Anglos there get exposed to it more. That is not necessarily this book. There are plenty of other good books. You know, it doesn't, it's not just a book. It's just Having even a Native person with an eighth grade education come and speak to your school can tell you more, you know, what you, I mean, absolutely blow your mind with information about the United States. Yeah, I just want to, wow, wow. Like you just shared a bunch of information that was completely like blowing my mind every second you were saying something new. And I was like... <laughs> Wow. That's all I can say. My, <laughs> You've taken all my words. But yeah, <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much, Professor Dumbaratiz, for taking the time to meet with me today. Thank you, Gavin. So Gavin, 
What are your thoughts after having that conversation? It's astonishing to me that every time I do one of these episodes, the authors are always etching new information. Like when you're putting a pencil over something that was erased, like in a spy movie. That's why we need to correct the record and fight against colonialization. Thanks for taking the time to work on this episode and for providing a space where these stories can finally be heard. Our producer, Gavin Scott, is a sophomore at Columbia University. Professor Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is an acclaimed historian and activist. You can follow her Twitter at rdunbarrow. That's R-D-U-N-B-A-R-O. We've included a link to her work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org, and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer, and CeCe Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>